Welcome back to Traces, a podcast that traces the impact of technology and design within people's lives and culture. Today, I talked to Crystal Thane. Born and raised in Yangon, Crystal is an art director currently based in New York City. She moved to the U.S. seven years ago to pursue a film degree with plans to eventually return home, but somewhere along the way, she stumbled into the world of advertising and now works for a global ad agency. She's passionate about storytelling, crafting experiences, and flaming hot Cheetos. I've been going back and forth between like being hopeful and hopeless as well. I think in the first week, I felt so hopeless because it was like overnight, you know, I, it almost seems like, because I, I was planning to eventually move back to Myanmar. Um, so suddenly, you know, once this happened, I was like, oh, like, you know, everything, it almost seemed like everything I had done to this point was pointless. Um, so, and I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of the Burmese diaspora were feeling that way too, because, you know, we came out of the country to, to receive education and kind of a lot of us wanted to go back um, to, to, to use what we've learned to improve the country. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Traces. Today I'll be talking to Crystal. Crystal, how are you? Where are you at right now? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm in New York City right now. It's spring right now, right? Is it, is it warm or is it still cold right now? It's, it's, it was particularly cold today, but it's been warming up more. And honestly, I'm, I'm, I can't wait for it because I can't handle the cold. Um, since I am from the tropical area, (laughs) (laughs) I still haven't gotten used to it. Oh yeah. How long have you been in New York, by the way? Um, in New York, I've only been here like six months. I moved here in the middle of the pandemic, which might sound crazy when everyone's trying to leave the city, but I, I found a window and I took the opportunity. So I'm here. Before that, I was in Boston for about over six years. Um, I came from Myanmar to study for college in Boston, and then I just ended up staying there um, with a job. And now it's been been like six and a half years, yeah, in America. Was it the education part that brought you here, or was it family? Like, what really piqued your interest in moving, by the way? It was definitely the education part. I think it was, I think, kind of set for me since I was back home. Um, I went to um, Burmese public school until like maybe fourth grade. And then I transferred to an international school. And then once I had that, I guess, foot in the door there, it was kind of set that, like, okay, like, you know, I would eventually go abroad to study for college. And whether that was like somewhere else in Asia or in America or Australia. Um, and I had a lot of relatives in America. So that's just kind of where I leaned towards and ended up coming here. Got it. And is your family still in Myanmar right now or... My parents and my sister are in Myanmar right now, and I have like distant relatives for sure. Um, but a lot of my cousins actually are in the States. Um, I have a lot of cousins on the West Coast um, in California and just kind of are all around pretty much spread out. But I definitely, I think, you know, my my stronger group of like family and friends are definitely still uh, based in Myanmar right now. Oh, wow. Yangon or? In Yangon, yep. Yeah, I'm, I was born and raised in Yangon. That's wild. Well, we'll get to that. Tell me how you grew up in in Yangon, because not a lot of people know. I mean, I know I do a lot of these episodes, but not a lot of people know about the struggles of growing up (laughs) there. And and I'm assuming that the Internet hadn't opened up when you were there. Right. 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 What was that like? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I was whenever I like tell people here um, and there's other like my Burmese friends, I feel like every Burmese person had might have had like a very different upbringing depending on like you know which city they were in 
who who they hung out with. But in terms of my my experience, I definitely remember all of like the the power cuts, the electricity. Um, you know, having like a quota for the electricity. Um, you know, if if we had like if we had the electricity on from like 6 p.m. to like midnight, and then maybe like the next 12 hours we would have it off. It just it was a very normal part of our, I guess, my childhood back then, and I hadn't really like realized how how like different it was until until like I guess I came here and also more recently in the past couple of months um just kind of realizing that how much that was you know like having not having access to to technology information just kind of I think almost stunted like the the, the growth of the whole country itself and then for me personally too I I feel like we, we all kind of found ways like everything was a lot of things were like banned like gmail was banned but yeah. everybody still had this pirated version called G-Lite. <laughs> um, everybody was still on G-Talk, you know, and we always had like this, usually it's, it's we don't have like actual, you know, DVDs of, you know, American TV shows or movies, but there was always these like DVD shops that had like Western media um, and everybody, everybody kind of like got their content from there. And honestly, I think I grew up watching a lot of international content so like i think i watch a lot of like anime and, oh, and korean oh i was i was a hardcore naruto fan <laughs> i was i grew up with naruto <laughs> i yeah i watch a lot of anime um so like i like picked up some japanese from there and then k-dramas were huge k-dramas are huge um back in it's it still is but back in the days too that was like the best kind of entertainment that was on burmese tv you know since there was only like two channels um and it was all government controlled but like thankfully they they aired Korean drama. So everybody at like 7 p.m. is like in front of the TV ready to watch like the K drama. And then at like 9 p.m. sometimes I think it's like a a Mandarin, um, like a kung fu kind of show. Not maybe not kung fu, but like yeah, like you know, back in the days. Um, so I feel like I was exposed to a lot of different languages and cultures since I was young. Um, you know, and then I also watched friends friends was like of course the one i guess like american tv show that really kind of like taught me about america and and like adult life <laughs> i don't know how accurate it is anymore but i i like learned a lot from friends <laughs> that's hilarious but and then i guess for you um did you did this is this how you picked up english actually or like because a lot of people have mentioned that to me they just picked up English through television shows. Yeah, no, I think so. For me, my I have a, I had a lot of cousins and relatives who were out of the country, and I remember specifically um, as a kid too. Uh, I think my our family I would sometimes speak English at home too because um, two of my cousins they would like when they would visit for the holidays they because they didn't grow up in Myanmar um, they didn't speak Burmese or at least like not very well. So we would always converse and play in English. So I think that part definitely helped me um, have a better command of the English language, uh, but also, you know, um, getting it from the movies and TV shows, <laughs> for sure. It's so funny, because when I talk to you, I feel like I'm talking to someone from the East Coast, and I can I can pick up your accent, <laughs> for real. <laughs> I, I think I have definitely turned into an East Coast person. <laughs> no, I can't deny that. That's, that's really funny. <laughs> and then... I guess, like, when you were growing up, right, what, what year was it? I, I mean, I know the year, but, like, what year was, was it for you when everything opened up, when the internet showed up and, and all of that stuff opened up for, I guess, Myanmar? How old were you? I feel like I kind of blocked out a good chunk of my, my childhood, but I feel like I remember two, I, 2010, 
I remember was kind of when everything changed in a sense that, uh, you know, the military was like, okay, we're going to like have less control. Um, Aosun Suchi was released around then. There was like a formation of like a, a quote, civilian government, but it wasn't exactly, you know, democratic. Um, so tw- I think 2010 was when that things definitely started to go more upwards. I was probably, I was in middle school at that time, but in terms of like the introduction of internet, it had been there, you know, before I remember like maybe as a very young kid, um, my dad's like a very, he, he's really into like gadgets and technology. And like, so he would always like set up, we had like a computer at home and then would have to like kind of take turns using it, whether it's like play games or whatnot. And like, I remember like before, this was like before we had like laptops to it. Even like later on, my sister and I had to like share one laptop or like we had to share one cell phone. Even when it like before she went off to college, when I was in middle school and she was in high school, we like shared one cell phone. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just because it wasn't, you know, it, I guess it, it, it was hard to get your hands on it back then. But I think around 2010, 2011, 2012 was when things definitely kind of, you know, shifted. Um, and suddenly it was so easy to to get your hands on a phone, on a, on a SIM card, because before a SIM card would be like hundreds of dollars. And now suddenly it was only like a couple dollars. Um, and so it, I think that, that was definitely a very interesting turning point in the whole country, you know, because suddenly everybody could afford to have phones, even people in like, you know, the rural areas. Um, so that's a, that's definitely a huge, something that changed the country a lot. Yeah. And I, I know like the iPhone was like thousands of dollars and only rich people had them too. Right. So <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, obviously they're still expensive in Myanmar, but it was just fascinating to, to hear that but also like mm-hmm. understand like that turning point for Myanmar and that's when everyone started going online and just finding stuff or learning about stuff because but even before that existed I've heard stories about how like developers or engineers would have to like torrent stuff download stuff and it would take forever mm-hmm. right and they would have gen- generators oh, yeah. outside of their apartment <laughs> just to like make sure the electricity is going it's crazy I didn't know that was like a yeah. thing <laughs> yeah, I for, oh my, I for almost forgot about that. The internet, uh, just watching like one three minute YouTube video would take like 30 minutes at least just like to buffer. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, watching anime, trying to watch things, anything online was was tough. So I always had like, um, I guess you could say like, I'm, I have some, I have some of my friends were like kind of suppliers. So if they have good internet, they like torrent, they download everything and then they like share it with everyone else. And we would like bring our hard drives and be like, okay, like we're, you know, we're, we're getting this from this person. We're getting this from that person. Wow. <laughs> it was a whole deal. That's crazy. And I guess, okay. So th- this is great for, for you when you're growing up, this, this happened, but how was it for your family when they like, all of a sudden it was like, oh, Hey, there's internet and I can get all this information. What was that like for your, maybe your parents? Was it like a game changer? Did they adjust? Did, like, how was that for them? Because they might have been like tech illiterate, right? Like, no, that's a good question. I think for my mom specifically, it might not have. It definitely changed in the sense that, like, oh, she, now she has a phone, and now she, you know, she has to learn how to use one. Um, but my dad was like, even like back in the days, he was always a bit more, I guess, for his for for like my parents' generation, he was always like the tech guy he like kind of everybody like came to him to ask about like computers um and like even even my like back when I was in primary school too I remember like the the teachers knew that oh my family had a 
or like my they kind of like knew my who my dad was and he was like oh yeah like they you know I I like knew how to use a computer more than like some of the other teachers um so it was it, it was interesting because I think since I was young I was definitely exposed you know to to more uh technological stuff just because of my dad um and he has like a huge interest and he's the kind of guy who you know he's gonna stay up until like 2 a.m just like reading stuff on the internet I think he still does he, he, he still does. Um, but he like learned a lot through the internet. Um, so I think I just kind of like picked up some of that habits as well. That's awesome. It's so, yeah. Talk about how you got into art and design that, that was that also similar to like how your dad got into like that type of stuff. Like what was that a very similar situation? Like where you just stayed up and just learned about it? Like, what was that like? Um, kind of, that's actually a good point because if I think about it, I think I learned how to use Photoshop through my dad um, because he had like the pirated version of like a Photoshop Illustrator. And he's also like a huge camera guy. So he has all of these like he's really into taking photos and then like doing stuff, you know, editing stuff. Um, So I kind of I think I'm pretty sure that the reason why I picked up uh, Photoshop was because of him and it just kind of like went from there I you know because I had photoshop I was like able to uh I guess do basic stuff that maybe some of my like classmates back then back then wouldn't have known so I think I, it kind of like led there I guess naturally because I initially um I actually wanted to go into music um, something in the creative field you know music was something that I was really interested in but I kind of started my first instrument was I played it in middle school um so but I so I felt like and I like I our family wasn't like the typical Asian family where like everybody has to learn piano or violin or you know <laughs> the basic like lessons um I never my family is like not very I think creative they, they weren't like big on like create on, on, on arts so um I only picked up an instrument later on and I really liked it but I felt like I didn't have like the the talent almost like the the you know like I feel like with music you really just kind of have to be in it. Um, I could do it, but I feel like it, I, it was hard for me to do it as a career. So I I ended up uh, I actually went into film. Um, I came into college as a film major because I wanted to. I did like some video stuff back in high school, um, and I wanted to get into like storytelling a bit more. Um, but what ended up happening was one summer after college freshman year, I went back home for the summer and then I ended up just kind of landing in a, in an internship and an ad agency. And that was like the first time I ever really knew about that, that such an industry had existed. Um, and that's oh, really? why I, yeah, I like, because the, you know, the ad industry back home is, I would say very, very wow. different, especially when I was growing up, all I knew about ads was that like, it was just kind of like cringy, um, you know, songs and like like celebrities on TV, and I didn't really think too much about it. And I and I thought that like all of these ads were put out by the brands themselves. It, it didn't occur to me that you know there would there would be like ad agencies and like people working to get this out. So that was kind of my first foray into advertising. And then when I came back to college, I realized that I enjoyed kind of advertising a bit more, um, and I felt that it was a bit more practical. I could still do like video stuff. Um, and then kind of just went from there and through this um, portfolio class I had, I kind of, it was like either, you know, you're either copywriter or an art director if you want to be a creative, you know? So, and I, because I had like, already had like a background in 
you know, designing stuff here and there, um, I was like, okay, I like, like, you know, let me try to be an art director. Um, and it just kind of went from there. That's so interesting. And then I know you mentioned a little bit, like, what were the views of Myanmar on, on art and design in general? Because you didn't even know that, that all these brands had like ad agencies do it, right? But what were, what were the views of, you know, I guess the public on these ads? I guess you, you talked about a little bit, like you just assumed that all these uh, brands would do it themselves, but turns out ad agencies would do it. What was the view for, I guess, like the benefit of using an ad agency in Myanmar? What was that like? What was the opinion in the public like for that? I think I would say now, you know, things might be different, but I feel like before I don't, you know, ad agencies weren't really viewed as, as I think as, as valuable as it is here in America, at least. Uh, because and I don't think it was like considered like a creative industry at all because it, it was a pr- probably a lot more about like you know the the business and not necessarily about the creative part of it um and it, all of it was like pretty much kind of copies um of each other too there wasn't anything kind of innovative so I think you know people wouldn't view it as like a a creative industry and in in general I think the arts you know you don't have like an art major like Colleges, at least back in the days um, in Myanmar, don't have like art as a subject to major in or, you know, I feel like the education doesn't really emphasize on that. So I think I was I was lucky that I kind of like got my way out of it and learned something a bit more in the creative field, because um, I do think that, you know, in in like I think in a lot of like Asian upbringings as well, you know, you, you know, you want to be a doctor, an engineer, um, a lawyer. That's kind of like the the three main, you know, goals that, you know, your parents want you to do. Um, and I think that's definitely the same in Myanmar as well. And Myanmar, I think it's sometimes a bit more like about business as well. And a lot of like, I would say like 80% of the people I went to high school with came to college and was a business major because just because that was like the thing to do. And I think I've also just kind of recently realized that, as time goes on, I think that that that's shifting for sure. Because if I think about like a couple people, a, a couple years above my grade, and like what they came to college for, said it's not like there weren't any like artists or creatives, but it was definitely the number was smaller. And now, now when I hear that, oh, a lot of like my um, my juniors from like high school, like now they're in college, and I'm surprised that a lot of them are like you know pursuing a d- degree in the arts. Um, whether that's like design or music or I think people are a lot more creative and like or at least openly creative um, which I which I love and I want to kind of encourage because I think that also kind of plays into the fact of like it's because the country was opening up that I think people are like okay like this isn't you know being a doctor isn't the only thing that we have to do you know working for a business isn't the only thing that we have to do we can like that I feel like at least you know a couple months prior to right now I think the mindset might have been like okay like you know now we have the freedom to to do other to pursue other things um which which I think is great because I'm also kind of just learning how much of a uh, uh this like creative circle not circle um this like creative network there is um back home that I wasn't aware of because when I came here too like you know a lot of my friends did business and I feel like it was hard to find other like-minded Burmese individuals you know who wanted to do something a bit more in the creative field. Yeah, there's not a lot of them, to be honest. Uh, I've, obviously, I, I work with one. Turns out 
we're talking off 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 air that you worked with him, which is unreal too. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's it's fascinating to me because a lot of the the Burmese I know are very into like government jobs, mm-hmm. uh, you know, doctor, lawyer, which is like stereotypical like Asian jobs, right? Right. Uh, dentist. <laughs> but like, you don't really see, I mean, I, I, I see, it, I, I think you're starting to see a shift though, Yeah. especially in the Southeast Asian countries, especially like there's a lot of now Filipinos in the creative scene. And I think it's, it's going to probably happen to Myanmar as well, eventually when you start seeing a lot more individuals just going into the creative field, as you mentioned, because I think it's just a different outlet. And I think some people, they just aren't aware of it. I think, you know, when technology came into their life, it was probably at a, like a strange moment for them because they probably had already invested in what they were interested in. And now they're like, maybe some of them may switch. Who knows? Uh, it'll just be very interesting in the next few years to see that. Because the, the Burmese I've been talking to, like a, a lot of them, especially on like on social mm-hmm. media, a lot of them are actually creatives, which is interesting. So, and, and they have like their backgrounds in like being a doctor, being right. a business marketer. And I'm like, oh, wow, like you, you're finally accepting that you're a creative. So I, I wonder, I wonder <laughs> if it's sort of related to that, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I've also been discovering more Burmese people with that kind of background, you know, and I think if you grew up in Myanmar and kind of like went through the education, I think people end up not. And maybe I don't know if it's just like with the times and the trends of things just now too that like oh people are embracing creativity a bit more. But I, I love to see that like oh you know maybe they were you know they went to school for a doctor, which means that they were you know to to go to school to get a medical degree like you have to be like really good with your grades and you have to be really smart. So that's cool that like oh they're smart and like creative. <laughs> like for me, I I feel like like gave up on my academics like senior year and. To college I think back in high school I was like oh yeah I have to like keep up with my grades um but then once I discovered that you know I could have a path as a creative I I thought less and less I cared less and less about my grades and like I guess doing anything academic <laughs> were your parents okay with that by the way <laughs> <laughs> no that, uh, that's a great question uh yeah actually my parents were pretty supportive Thankfully, um, you know, not not a lot of I I would say like Burmese parents would be okay with it. Um, but you know, I I guess it's I was lucky that I didn't have like a family business to fall back into. I think if you know if my family had a business, then I might be kind of burdened to be like, oh, I have to like come back and run the family business. Um, but I didn't have that, thankfully. So they I think they were definitely worried um, when I went into film because they were like, oh, that's not a very stable industry. But, you know, we'll support you if you wanted to do it. So I think they were actually glad that I ended up switching to advertising because they're like, oh, that's that's a lot more stable. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Um, and then for you, like, let, let's take a few steps back. Like, I, I don't think people know how bad the ed- well, not bad, but I guess let me rephrase that. How interesting the education system is in Myanmar, because people don't talk about when the military was running the schools, mm-hmm. right? It was a lot of propaganda. And then when, when the internet just shows up out of nowhere, you're like, oh, <laughs> um, there's a lot more information out there, right? <laughs> and I know you mentioned it, but what was that like for the education system? Like, I'm very interested. Like, I, I don't, again, I don't know what you learn in, mm-hmm. 
like I know there's like the basics, but what do you learn in the schools? And then what what happens when when all of a sudden it's like oh there's a whole world out there of information <laughs> coming to play? Like what was that like for you? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's interesting because at, at least from for me, I had like kind of I experienced both worlds in the sense that I did I started out in um, Burmese school. And I honestly, I'm very, very grateful that I left that system because going, thinking back on it, you know, it, it, it really focused on, it was all about like memorizing, at least what, from what I can remember. It's, a, it's not about like thinking critically or like learning really. It's all about like memorization and like the way you study is by um, reading stuff out loud because you're basically memorizing it. And there's this kind of like tone and rhythm that every student will go through. Um, and you can kind of tell like, oh, this is like how kids study is like you you kind of like recite the paragraphs and the words as like a form of memorization. And I honestly blocked out a lot of my memories in Burmese school just because I wasn't I don't think I wasn't really my brightest back then. I think I, I'm pretty sure that I thought that I was either dumb or just like a very, very average kid. Um, but only when I transferred to international school, I realized that was like, oh, you know, I, I'm able to think about things a bit more clearly. Um, and and it, everything kind of like clicked a bit better for me. I, I don't know if it was just like me as a person, but I think when I was in Burmese school, I definitely felt like I wasn't, I definitely wasn't thriving. <laughs> and yeah. only, only a lot later, I realized that like, oh, you know, that the education system is just messed up. Um, like this isn't exactly how kids should be taught. And I think too, too often, too many people have fallen into that kind of system of just, you know, you, you have to, you, you can't question your authorities. Um, there, there is only like, there's, there is a right answer. I think that's basically the education system, you know, that was brought up under the military is that, you know, you don't ask questions, you don't talk back to, to, to people above you. Um, and that's been kind of instilled in people. So I, I was very lucky that I got the chance to receive a Western education and kind of express my, learn how to kind of express myself a bit more, even though I, you know, I, I'm still kind of working on it. Um, but even like public speaking, um, I think that's definitely just not something that's not in a, in a sense taught the same way in Burmese school. And even with like technology, I, I remember there was computer class when I was in Burmese school. I don't remember what we learned, but I remember learning to type in Burmese, like in Burmese keyboard, um, because the keyboards had also had like Burmese characters. That's like the most I remember about technology in Burmese school. But and then I went on to, when I went to international school, um, I remember work doing a lot of things on paint <laughs> as an elementary school kid. There was like, we had like computer class. That was probably like one of my favorite classes. Um, cause we had like floppy disks and, um, and we would like get to do stuff on paint. Um, and then, of course, gradually that progressed to HTML or like Photoshop or whatever. Um, I didn't really take too much computer classes back then. But, you know, once once like the country did open up with the Internet, it was also a lot more like easier to do like research projects. And I think that's definitely one of the things that's different from uh, a Burmese ed education versus the Western one is that um, I think the Burmese one is a bit more strict and like you know you you do tests you you like study and you have tests I feel like that's kind of set just that's just it versus like I really enjoyed like 
other kinds of projects in a Western education, under the Western education, because or like group projects, you know, like working together rather than just taking exams or, or like writing essays, I guess. Um, because I wasn't really good with that kind of thing. But if it was like something a bit more like an activity, I always kind of enjoyed it more. And that's, I think that's probably why I thought like I thrived more. That's awesome. Yeah. Your Burmese education system sounds like the U.S. education system, by the way. <laughs> um, no, no, anyway, um, well, when, when did you transition from Burmese school to in- international school? How old were you when you did that? I was... I, I was in fourth grade. I didn't finish fourth grade in Burmese school. Um, I want to say I was like maybe nine or 10. Um, mm. but I want to say like nine or like eight, nine. I, f- I forget the, the year as well. But I remember it was like fourth grade, um, which is which is honestly kind of bad because after that, my Burmese skills definitely diminished um, the longer I studied in English. And like now that I'm here to... I think, you know, I, I like it's harder for me to read now, but actually it's funny because in the past month or two um, since the military coup, suddenly I've had to, I've just kind of consumed a lot more Burmese content. And I realized that I, it was, it was always in me. I just kind of like turned on before I was like, it, it would make me dizzy to like read too much Burmese at once. But now I'm like, I think because I'm like forced to, I like, I'm like more heightened. I'm like, it, I realized that I, it's, I can read it a lot faster now and comprehend it better. So I guess it was always in me, but I just didn't have the practice. That's awesome. And I want everyone that's listening to Google Burmese keyboard because I want people to see how crazy <laughs> that keyboard is. The first time I saw a Burmese keyboard, it, it was a meme like a long time ago, maybe like 10 years ago. I, I saw it and I was like, what? <laughs> like, how do people type with that? type of keyboard and because mm-hmm. there's so many different characters right right so i guess i was definitely awestruck because those keyboards are gigantic <laughs> yeah no i think also now there's like different um keyboards like there's like zaji versus unicode um and i i don't even know anymore i think before you know when i was a kid the, the keyboard that i learned i don't know what system it was but it, it's a different system now and i feel like it's always hard to um, it's always hard for my phone to like read certain types of Burmese because it would just get jumbled and it's not very um, compatible with with the rest of the world. So I think we're still working towards that. Yeah, I, I mean, I've talked about it in another episode. I think right now Apple has formalized Unicode mm-hmm. and no one's using Zoggy. Mm-hmm. But the problem is uh, Android <laughs> still uses Zoggy, right? And right. it's an issue. I think everyone's slowly conforming to Unicode, but it's going to take a while in general. So, um, especially now, uh, yeah, <laughs> we can talk about that. I think, um, well, yeah, what, what's happening right now in Myanmar? Um, you, you want to educate the folks? Cause, uh, I think it'd be great to hear from you instead of me. Yeah, the no, issue. for sure. Um, you know, um, on February 1st, on February 1st, the military staged a coup. And this is how, it, at least this is how it began. Um, and they detained all of like the, the elected government officials. They detained the president, Uwemye, and they did, detained Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the state counselor and the de facto leader of the country. And the reason why this was kind of significant also with like timing is that, you know, we had just had elections in November, and, but the military had claimed that there was election fraud 
So even before February 1st, there was talks saying that, oh, maybe, you know, maybe they might, they might take over again. But the people were like, oh, no, you know, it, it probably, it won't happen. It probably won't happen. Um, but, but it did happen. And I think the first kind of thing that people thought, had emotion that people thought was like kind of fear because they cut off, at least on the day of, they cut off all like the phone lines so that people couldn't contact each other for, for a couple hours. Like they cut off the internet. Actually, they might not have cut off the internet, um, but they cut off the phone lines so that people couldn't communicate. So there was a lot of panic on that morning. You know, people were lining up in front of the ATMs at the banks um, or like grocery stores just because everything was so uncertain. But at the same time, it was also scary because we, as a country, we have seen this before. We, you know, we, to give like a little historical background, the military was in power for pretty much the past couple of decades from 1962 until, until 2010. Um, you know, um, 1962 was when there was the first coup and uh, Ne Wing, who was like the first kind of military dictator, he took over for a couple of decades. And that's kind of when the country went into darkness and stopped while the rest of the world had moved forward, you know, um, and that kind of escalated in 1988 when um, the, economic, the economy was really bad and it was just reaching like a point where people couldn't take it anymore. And the students came out to protest and there was this huge uprising called the 88 uprising. Um, and, you know, there was a, a violent crackdown. And after that, the country kind of like went into darkness again and pretty much it, it, it was it it was just a very backwards time for the country um until later in year like 20 in the 2010s things were starting to get better Alison Suji was released and she her party the National League for Democracy NLD um you know they were able to run for election in 2015 and in 2015 was the first free general election that um we've had in like years um, and surprisingly too, I think people were, when it happened, people were kind of scared, like, oh, will they actually accept the results? Because the last time they had an election, they said they, they ignore the results in 1991, in 1990 or 1991, the NLD also won by a landslide, but they decided, nope, we're not going to recognize the results. Um, and they, you know, they put Aung Suji back into house arrest and just arrested a lot of, um, political leaders, but Fast forward to 2015, everyone thought that, oh, we were finally making progress, you know, like, oh, we might actually have something along the lines of democracy um, because the NLD won up by a landslide and the military was like, okay, you know, you guys are kind of in control now, but except they're, they're not um, because they, before they released Aung San Suu Kyi, they drafted a constitution in 2008 that basically um, guaranteed 25% uh, of the parliament seats would be reserved for the military. So technically, for anything to pass parliament, the military would have to say yes to it. If they say no, then it can't pass because they need the 25% um, vote. So in a sense, they were still in control, but I guess on the surface, it made it seem like, you know, um, Aung San had the power when, when she actually kind of didn't. And the military was still, you know, associated with a lot of businesses and they still had a huge um, influence in the, in the, in the country. Um, so backtracking or like fast forwarding to, to now today, I guess, you know, um, the past two months since February 1st, things have just kind of 
I think I would say that, you know, history is repeating. 1988 is repeating, except it's, it's, it's even more, I would say, um, extreme because now, you know, people are, are not taking it anymore. And because we've lived under the military regime before we, you know, we know how, how bad it is. And which is why people are now kind of saying that, you know, it's, it's, it's worse to live under the military regime than to die. So they they're like coming out on the streets and protesting. And I would say, I think now the death toll has passed 500 um, from the past two months since February 1st. Like in the beginning, you know, they, the military just kind of like cut off internet. They banned a lot of stuff. They released like these new laws. They kept putting out charges for Aung San Suu Kyi and all of the detained people. They kept arresting more people. Um, but eventually it did escalate to violence. And I think day by day, it, it has been getting worse. Um, and I think just a couple of days ago or yesterday, they announced that um, all of the internet services, internet service providers would be shut off. So only people who have fiber internet, Wi-Fi uh, would be able to use the internet. So this is like back, back, you know, back in the, I guess, stone age again, where people have to use like radios and, um, like cell phone, like landlines. And it's, it's just like turning back into, to the old days again. And so right now it's, it's in a very tense moment, I would say, sorry, that was, that was a lot. It's a lot to unpack. No, no, this is great. I think you eloquently spoke about the history. I think people need to know that the history of his, like pretty much repeating itself is so important because, uh, every person I've talked to, um, out, off air, right? Mm-hmm. I think they they're frustrated because it's the fact that uh, okay. One point is like the government. I feel like the government and, and a lot of people echo this haven't hasn't really thought this through, mm-hmm. and they they just want power at this point. Right. Like uh, and and the fact that you know everyone everyone knows that oh we're gonna have elections in a year. That I don't think that's gonna happen. Yeah. Um, to be honest, and and I don't think the i forget his name the the guy that took power yeah on the junta yeah that guy hasn't really thought things through and he just wants to establish the military as their primary again but it, this is a different myanmar right? right and i think they are stunned that everyone is now speaking out against them and it's just fascinating and the second point is like all these other groups now are slowly coming together mm-hmm. and uh you know from the sense i got from another interview i did was Civil war seems like it's going to happen, probably based on like what's happening. Is that true, or what? What do you think is going to happen? I would say that that's you know a lot of there's been lots of talks going on about civil war, and I think it's very, um, it's it's not unlikely. It, it's it's likely because the, so right now the the current legitimate government, you know, um, once once the the military had taken over, they they arrested a lot of the government officials, but there were um, a couple that they didn't, and they have formed a legitimate government. So these are like the elected officials, um, and they're you know, operating from who knows where or how. But they have been stepping up in the past couple of weeks and kind of announcing this uh, formation of the federal of, of a federal army. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the plan is, but uh, I would say, in terms of the timeline of what has happened since February first, I think February first hit. Um, you know, and, and the military, like, like like you mentioned, they they thought that it was going to be easy. Um, 
there was speculation that the reason why Mayan Lang uh, initiated this now is because he was supposed to retire. His retirement was coming up um, this year because he he reached, uh, I guess, like an age where the, the head of, he was the chief, his position had to be retired. So there was a lot of speculation that, you know, he staged this coup so that he could stay in power longer, um, you know, and their initial announcement was that, oh, you know, we're declaring a state of emergency. Um, but after a year, we're going to like hand power back. We're going to hold elections again and everything will be great. Um, but and I guess their plan is that like before they do that, they would replace all of like the government officials. So they a couple of days in or weeks in, you know, they replace like the, the election committee, the commission. Um, so I what their plan, I think, was to take over and then put their people in um, positions of power and then go back saying, that, okay, you know, you have your freedom, you have your democracy. Um, but what they didn't realize was, you know, people, it, it, you, you, what you said was exactly right. It's, it's a different Myanmar now and the people are different and the people's mindset is different. And they've accidentally started a revolution. Um, and now that's definitely... Um, looking like it's going to turn into a civil war as well, um, just because, you know, at first, I think what started was like the protests. And then there's something called CDM. So the Civil Disobedience Movement is what it's called. Um, that has been so far the most effective way to kind of fight against the resist the military, because Civil Disobedience Movement is basically the workers, government workers, civil servants refusing to work under the military regime. Um, so basically going on strike. And that has, I think it started maybe like a couple of days in, it was started by a group, group of doctors in Mandalay. And that, you know, people followed, the whole country followed from like, you know, teachers, doctors, all sorts of like government official, government workers followed suit. And that has, def that was definitely something that the military was not expecting because now it's like they don't have people to to order around and like run the government so it's it's been i think that's been the hard, hardest hitting thing for them but now because they you know resorted to violence it's it's kind of like okay people can do ctm but you know once they start shooting what what can we do so but now i think the crph the legitimate government has stepped in and be like okay you know we're going to be the acting kind of like figurehead you know um and we are going to support the cdm workers and we're going to have a, I guess, like a better system in to to fight against to fight in this revolution because I think what was different in '88, the tactics that the military used was the same, um, but the thing about '88 was that there wasn't as much I would say organization or like a, a, a set plan for what people would want after this you know after once after after this revolution. But now I think so many people of different like backgrounds, races, groups are coming to coming together, which is has never been seen before, um, especially in Myanmar, which is so divided between like, you know, ethnicities and different groups that I, I think the military kind of like it, it, the, the silver lining of, of this is that, you know, like there's never been so much unity before yeah. in like different ethnicities. And like even, you know, people are finally now starting to speak up about the Rohingyas who were um, you know, uh, this uh, minority group, Muslim minority group in Rakhine who were, you know, it was basically a genocide going on in the country, but a lot of the Burmese Buddhists, for, for instance, you know, wouldn't condemn it. 
because there were differences. But now, you know, the Rohingyas are speaking up against the military, condemning the coup. And now we're all saying that, you know, they're, Rohingyas are our brothers and sisters as well, and they do deserve to be in our country. Um, so it's it's a very, I, I, I don't know what to expect of it because there's things are just happening so fast. It definitely get, I, yeah, I, I honestly don't know what to expect, but I, ha- I do have hope that things are things are going to get better maybe even if it's not immediate you know yeah i think i mean it's that saying right things have to get worse before they get better um right in general um and i, I think it's yeah fascinating because i know so i know i also talked to someone else that they were saying like no one believed you know all those atrocities the military was committing against the rohingya for a while right mm-hmm. in, in myanmar i'm speaking about myanmar mm-hmm. i think you know people heard stories about it but then the fact that oh the military are like using brutal tactics they are doing all these terrible things now i think everyone now is aligned that hey like we need to unite against the military because no one really believed those stories right they just they said just said it was like fake news is that that's that's it was that pretty much Mm -hmm. the i guess the feeling back then when when those stories came out i would say that it's it's a lot of uh it was it wasn't just like i think also like fake news but there was a lot of talk that, you know, it wasn't just the, it, it almost seemed like a, a conflict between like Buddhist, Buddhists and, and Muslims just because what's kind of like really sparked this kind of conflict, not that it hadn't been going on before, but and I think in 2016, there was a case of a, that uh, this girl was attacked by these two Muslim men. And that's when kind of like, oh, you know, the Burmese Buddhists were saying that, oh, you know, they attacked us versus, you know, and, and there was, there was a lot of, I guess, fake news as well. And I would say that Facebook was also under fire a lot for, for, you know, spreading a lot of misinformation or at least allowing the spread of misinformation because the, the whole situation also definitely um, escalated through Facebook. And like, I think, you know, people, people treat the, the people in Myanmar treat, Facebook, like the internet, you know, they don't Google things. They, they look things up on Facebook. Um, so that was a whole uh, different, uh, case as well in the sense that I think people were almost kind of believing this other narrative from the military, at least the people in, in Myanmar, I would say that they were believing the narrative from the military that like, Oh, these people are not, these people are not, you know, they don't belong in this country. That was that was the narrative that was presented, and people did kind of believe that because you know that they didn't see the, because they didn't see the other side of it. But now I would say that people are like, oh, okay, what what happened to the Rohingyas was bad, and the military was, you know, it's I think it's finally coming to light that like, oh, we should have said something, oh, yeah. we should have spoke up. Um, and, and I know also yeah. Shan State was also going through its own civil war, right? Like there, mm-hmm. there are all these different conflicts that are happening all around uh, Myanmar and I guess the government coming to well the junta now coming into power has definitely made all these people reconsider like okay who's the real enemy at this point right so it is fascinating and I know this the KLA as well running around so there's there's so many like weird factions that are out there that um, it is going to be interesting the next uh, three to six months because I really do hope you know, something comes together. But uh, again, a lot of the people I've been talking to 
in Myanmar, uh, the people that are living there are, are definitely sound a little more, I guess, uh, there's something very sombering talking to them because mm. you hear, I, I hear all the stories on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, well, how has it been for you? I feel like you're stressed, you're stressed about this. Is, is your family okay? Is everything all right? Like, What's how you've been contacting them since the internet's been shut down? Yeah, no, my thankfully my family is safe for the most part. Um, at least my parents, you know, they live in a, they kind of live outside of the city where like most of the the conflict has been happening. Um, so I would say that you know, and they have access to 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 internet uh, to the fiber internet. So, um, you know, I've been able to like contact them here and there. Um, which is honestly a much, uh, you know, it, it gives me a lot of peace of mind. But I guess right now, I guess my stress comes from the rest of the people who, you know, who might not have access to internet, who depend on, um, you know, cellular data to to go about their days. And the the interesting thing about now is that social media has been playing a huge, huge role in this fight, because I think it's also partly why now, you know, um, people are kind of uh, like it. For instance, like there has been like civil war going on in the borders, you know, in Shan State and in Karen State, but people were not as exposed to it, I would say. You know, all the atrocities that were committed were not on the internet. But now, now that it's happening to the whole country and, you know, people have the ability to just, you know, basically act as a news outlet with their phone, like taking videos and photos, just recording. You know, something I've seen so many like live videos, you know, that were taken. Um, uh, you know, I, it's 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 crazy because it, it almost feels like you're there, but you're not there. Um, and you don't, you know, I don't wait for at least when it started happening. I didn't like exactly my my updates were for people on the ground, not necessarily like news news channels, news outlets. You know. Yeah. Um. So I it was almost surreal because you know it's 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 almost like that could it could be anybody that I know too, um, which is like the scary part. Um, but, and I think, you know, at this point, a lot of, all of us kind of like, we, we know someone or who, who knows someone, you know, who's been like arrested or kidnapped or, uh, have, have been killed. Um, so it's, it's a crazy situation. Um, I've been trying to deal with it in my own ways, um, the past two months, because there's also definitely this guilt that a lot of people are feeling, you know, um, they call it survivor's guilt in terms of people who are on the ground too, but also those of us who are away, you know, who have this privilege of being abroad in another country, um, but at the same time feeling helpless that you can't at least physically do anything about it. Yeah, that is, that's a tough one. Uh, I've definitely, I, I don't know, it's, it's not relatable, I know, but like ever since I've been out in Singapore and you're starting to see all these hate crimes against Asians in America, um, mm -hmm. there's something mm -hmm. that lingers within me that is like, I, I need to do more <laughs> type of feeling. Yeah. I, it, I know it's not mm -hmm. the same, but I totally feel you on, on a level, that level of, I need to do something or, or deal with it in my own way. Cause it is, it is hard. Um, I guess what can be done? What can, what can the international community help s support in general right now? Because I think it is so tough with the fact that internet has been shut down um, I mean, there's also like, apparently from, from what I've heard as well, like there's fake news being spread by the government that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the protesters set 
fire to the Chinese factories. And then when I've been talking to people, it's like, no, the protesters wouldn't do that. So, right. right? There are all these questions that are coming up. Like, so how can we best support, but also be aware, like what's real or what's not? Like, how would you give tips to anyone that's following the situation in general? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think um, right now, what I've been telling people is also like, I think, the, the least that everybody can do is just kind of share and talk about what's happening. Because I think at least what, from what I've seen in America, you know, it, Myanmar is a country that people don't really know of here. You know, if I tell someone like, if somebody asks me where I'm from, I, I don't, I, I usually expect them not to know where Myanmar is um, just because it's been so closed off. So like now suddenly it's like, it's in the headlines, but I feel like it's not making enough media coverage. It's not that, you know, people, it, media outlets don't report it. I think it's just not reaching people here. So I've also been trying to, you know, think of ways to like, okay, like how can we, I guess like, how can we let people know and how can, how do we make them care? Um, and it's interesting because, you know, the kind of, I think from the Americans that I have talked to, at least when the coup started, it, it was almost like a parallel to America in a sense that- yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> you know, on January 6th. Yeah. Um, this I guess technically this is not this is not a coup. This is so far from a coup. But um when the Trump supporters stormed Capitol Hill on January 6th, you know, there was this fear. I also I remember watching it and I was like, is this really happening in America? <laughs> you know? Um and, and and I think a lot of people were fearful that oh, things are gonna, you know, go bad. Um, but it didn't, thank, thank, thankfully, at least not yet. Um, so I think people were able to kind of, in a sense, try to relate and understand like, oh, you know, uh, this just happened or this just almost happened in America. And now things are even worse in Myanmar right now. So I think it was one way for them to relate. Um, but in terms of what people can do, I think definitely, you know, sharing about what's going on, talking um, and just giving more, uh, I guess, space in, in the social space, just like making sure that the story isn't, hasn't died down because I think when it first happened, it was like all over the news. Um, but now I've definitely seen a lot, a lot, like a lot of it more winding that like, oh, you know, this is just becoming another thing in another part of the world that's happening and it's continuing to happen versus I know that a lot of uh, Burmese people in the diaspora are like, oh, no, we have to continue sharing these stories because, you know, this is still happening and it's not okay that it is. Um, so that's definitely what I'm trying to do is just keeping keep sharing everything that's going on um, and then donating, um, you know, donating to support the CDM workers um, and and the, the people who have been in the front lines, you know, the families of the people who have fallen. Um, and, you know, even I, I've seen like donation links also for ambulances and like medical help. Um, there's like so many, I'm so glad that, you know, people have been like really mobilizing to, to get support, to help people. Um, I've been, I've seen so many fundraisers, um, you know, I think just, right. It's also kind of hard to get international funds into the country right now, but people have found their ways. Um, and I think, you know, it, a lot of a little money can go such a long way in Myanmar. Like, like it only it only takes like like five dollars, less than five dollars, to support one person in Myanmar. Um, at least on average, you know, for for one CDM worker. So I think I've also been trying to like advocate for you know people to donate. Um, 
in I guess in not even just like a one-time donation. I think you know have consistent support because more and more people are joining CBM, and they need. I feel like this needs to be a longer effort uh, because it's not. Unfortunately, it's not ending anytime soon. Um, so I think the the this monetary support is also kind of needed. So those are kind of like the two. Uh, I guess pillars that I've been focusing on in terms of like sharing um, and donating. Do you mind sharing any organizations that they can donate to, or is that a yeah, secret? No, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think some 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 are actually running on secret, you know. But there's been a lot going on. I would say Mutual Aid Myanmar is uh, at least one bigger one that's been more active in the international uh, realm in terms of you know they they they're working with, at least in the u.s they're working they're, they're going through a certified nonprofit organization you know so it's like tax, tax deductible and everything um and this this group was formed by people like former activists and a group of like activists so they have a lot of connections on the ground as well um so they're 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 also they're doing a lot of good work um i would also say um there's a site i support myanmar.com um, that's been a great resource in terms of they have a, a bit more uh, comprehensive list of like different f- f- uh, donations, list of like donations that you can donate to. So maybe, you know, uh, donating to CDM workers or or like paying to top up people's phone bills or helping medical workers. Um, there's a more comprehensive list on there. Plus, they also have um, a tab for kind of petitions to sign. That's also another thing. Um, there's been lots of petitions going on, you know, whether that's calling on the UN or like your, your U.S. senators and governors, um, or, or even like boycotting military affiliated businesses outside of the country. So like in Singapore, I've seen letters for like Singapore, Australia, and the U.S., um, because there's a lot of, um, international funds that the military has access to. So the call right now is like, oh, you know, the rest of the world needs to take international action and block these off. Um, and there's also, and that, on that link, I support me Um, they also have resource or like accounts on social media to follow. Um, and I think honestly that just like keeping is being, um, aware, um, and like following what's going on these like kind of accounts that have been like active on, um, you know, being good about like sharing information. Um, there's this, um, uh, account called Mohinga Matters. They've been like uploading since February 1st, um, what they're calling it freedom memoirs. Um, they've been uploading daily blog entries of what's been happening. Um, you know, and there's like another, uh, there are other accounts doing that, You're, like uploading things daily, you know, uh, updates, photos, what's happening. There's so much out there that honestly, it's, it's hard for me to keep up as well. Um, and I, I like scroll, I've been scrolling so much. It's honestly bad for me, but um, I do feel like at least if I'm not doing anything, at least I have a responsibility of like, you know, knowing what's going on so that I can tell other people about it as well. Yeah, I've been starting to repost tweets now. Um, I, I have like two Twitter accounts, like one's this podcast uh, mm-hmm. account that, that retweets a lot of the, the news that's been coming out. And then now my personal account's been doing that i think more people need to know and understand that this is happening um i'm most tempted to post on linkedin as well because it's it people need to know i don't see a lot of people talking about linkedin i know it's like an also professional space but i think people need to know that 
this type of stuff is happening and we need to have more gratitude about you know what we have i think that's the the thing that mm-hmm. i've been learning especially talking to people from myanmar uh mm-hmm. and the people on the ground uh and to give you context i talked to a public policymaker mm-hmm. and a human, humanitarian the last two um interviews and they're both on the ground and they just it was probably the two saddest conversations i've mm-hmm. had um and i mean I, which gets to my next question for you is like, I know a lot of them, they just seem very hopeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them, I mean, understandably so, cause it's obviously just not looking good right now. Yeah. Um, what do you think, what, what would be the ideal situation, even though everything looks bleak right now, what would you want to see happen? I guess. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I, I definitely understand that, you know, it's, it, I've, I've been going back and forth between like being hopeful and hopeless as well. I think in the first week I felt so hopeless because it, it was like overnight, you know, I, it almost seems like, because I, I was planning to eventually move back to Myanmar. Um, so suddenly, you know, once this happened, I was like, oh, like, you know, everything, it almost seemed like everything I had done it to this point was pointless. Um, so, and I think a lot of people, out of the country to to receive education and kind of a lot of us wanted to go back um to 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 use what we've learned to improve the country but when this happened it was you know very hopeless but what at least what gave me hope was how much people were coming together um i i, I don't think i've never felt so proud and impressed by the people um, just because like, even like there's small little things, even like in the first couple days of protests, when people came out, people were so, um, good about everything too. Like they, you know, they talked to, I saw, I've seen videos of like, you know, the protesters and young, young people too. These are like, you know, probably like around people my age or even younger, um, I guess, you know, giving, giving them flower, giving the police flowers and kind of like, you know, telling them that, oh, you're, you are the people's police. Um, just kind of like this very um, selfless kind of acts um, and, you know, being a very, very peaceful, um, no matter, you know, what they face. Um, and the amount of that people had come together, you know, it was very, and, and even like the, the, the younger generation too, I've heard that they're very um, eloquent and they know, you know, they know how to like talk um, and like, I've seen a lot of like videos of, of like, you know, people talking about like, why, you know, why, why am I here protesting? Um, and it's honestly so impressive that like, oh, wow. Like, I think at first I was like thinking that, you know, the Burmese education has failed us all, but because this is the, the, the newer, younger generation, they have a different sense of sense and idea of what, what democracy and freedom really is. And they're not going to accept anything less. Um, and I think that definitely gave me energy that like, okay, there's, there's hope in the younger generation and for, for this younger generation and the future generations to come, we, we have to keep fighting in this revolution. Um, and then, you know, once, once things did get violent, I would say that I, at least for me watching from, you know, uh, the other side of the world was, um, devastating. And I, I had expected that, you know, oh, once it gets violent, people might back back out, um, you know, because, and I think 
this mindset have might have been true for like the older generation as well because you know they've lived through this in 88 you know they think that you know it's not it's the, the military isn't going to budge and the cycle is going to like continue going on forever but this generation is just different times are different social media is everywhere and suddenly the rest of the world seems to care now to to a certain extent at least um and you know the people are so very very brave i would say um i you know i've heard that you know they people say that you know the more they kill us the more we're gonna come back and fight even stronger because there's this kind of uh there's this, what people are saying is oh we there's this uh, phrase we say which means you know we must win this revolution it's it's not like it's not we will win this revolution we we it's we must because there is no other option you know too many people have have given their lives innocent innocent lives um, fighting for this and so you know we can't let their deaths be in vain and we have to keep resisting no matter how you know how bad it gets so i feel like that's kind of been the mindset of the people from what i've seen um and that also kind of gives me energy and hope too i think when i'm feeling a bit more down if i see like my friends say like okay don't worry guys we have to we will win this you know i believe that you know in the end we will win this um i think even just adding having that like small boost of energy like encouragement from each other i think has been really um uplifting for each other um and I, I you know if i if i'm feeling down and somebody shares a bit something a bit more positive to me i i share that with somebody else who who is down and they're also like oh thank you for sharing that with me you know thank you for reminding me because yeah we have to keep going as much as we can because it's it's it, it's a very hard time um but i think people are also being mindful of each other you know telling each other oh you know it's you have to think about your own mental health too um you know you have to take breaks when you can so that you know tomorrow you can come back stronger um because we need to take care of ourselves if we want to take care of other people too um so i think this i i i do like feel hopeless at times but there i think i, I think there is still hope in the way that people are resisting right now um yeah i now i think now it might things will probably get worse um if civil war breaks out um you know there will be a lot more casualties but i am hoping that at least in the long run i i feel like i have more faith and hope in the country and the people now now that you know we're we're going through this i think we will come once once we do i guess win this um and once we are able to go back to a time where you know the country is free again and people actually have are able to do what they want without being oppressed i think you know i think it will i think this has definitely shed a light on that the con- the, the country's future is very bright it was very bright now it's kind of on pause but I think there is light at the tunnel. I think I do think so. I have to tell myself that. Yeah. And I think also people uh, have even mentioned, right, Generation Z is like apparently the best generation coming up, right? That's going to give us hope. <laughs> best equipped pretty much for the next uh few years to lead us into whatever 
that may look like that piece or um, I, I don't know what they call it, but I guess Generation Z is well equipped because they, they've lived through everything mm -hmm. that they're going to be the next generation's leader, right? So it's going to be very interesting because yeah. I definitely agree with you. Like every social media post I've seen, uh, whether it's in the city or villages, like they're always, the, the younger folks are very eloquent. Mm -hmm. um, and even though like one of them may fall because a lot of people like have fallen because of that, mm -hmm. they still come back stronger, which is so, it should, just shows the heart and resilience of the people in general, um, regardless whoever gets, you know, shot down. Um, I think it's, it's going to be very interesting the next, I don't know. I don't know how long it's going to last, but hopefully it gets resolved. Um, it, yeah, I'm, I'm pulling, I'm pulling for the people. That's for sure. Um, yeah. Just to end on a lighter note, cause I know this is such a sombering topic. I, I always wanted to ask you, um, uh, feel free to promote anything, but what is up with your love of Cheetos? <laughs> oh, this is definitely oh, something so, that. <laughs> <laughs> so for context, Crystal's like Instagram, they're like photos of her with flaming bag, uh, like flaming Cheetos in like some photos. And then even on your site, like what is your, your love and obsession with flaming hot Cheetos? <laughs> it's, it's definitely become a brand of mine. I don't know if it's just because I work in advertising, but I have fully embraced it as you can see. Um, but I, it just kind of, honestly, it happened on as, as a joke in the beginning. Um, I had, obviously I, I do like Flaming Hot Cheetos. Um, and I, I would have to like always bring back bags of Cheetos for my sister when I go back. And like, even when I was um, a kid back home, like our relatives would always bring back bags of Cheetos um, from America because it's, it's an American thing. You can't get it elsewhere. Yeah. Um, it's American delicacy, but, um, American delicacy. There, uh, go on. <laughs> <laughs> there was, a I I had, uh, it was a photo of me. I had a photo of me. Okay. So this is the story is that my Tinder profile picture was a picture of me eating flaming hot Cheetos. And so my friends made fun of me for that. And then one time when we went on a hiking trip, we, bought we like brought like a bag of cheetos with us as well and my friend kind of like jokingly said that oh you should take more photos for tinder and kind of like had a photo shoot with a bag of cheetos and it just kind of went from there and people really loved it and encouraged and then supported it um so i was like okay i guess people really like it so i just kind of like continued doing it and i now it's it's like my thing i have like i own like maybe like at least 10 articles of cheeto flaming hot related clothing like t-shirts hats accessories um and now everything anything i post has to be like flaming hot content <laughs> it's 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 taken over my life <laughs> is that your hashtag flaming hot content like, <laughs> i would say I, i've been using like sometimes flaming hot crystal um i should i should make that the actual hashtag maybe that's that should be my handle honestly um and actually i think my my biggest accomplishment is getting cheetos to repost me um, they saw one of my photos and they were like, oh, can we repost this? I was like, oh my God, yes, please do. Um, so they reposted me, but now in retrospect, I, I should have asked for something, you know, <laughs> I should have like asked for, for sponsorship. <laughs> or a lifetime a supply of Flaming Hot Cheetos. Yeah, no, I think it's like, I think, I, I don't know if it's because, you know, I work with a lot of people in advertising, um, but they love it. They're always like, I think now it's like Crystal equals Cheetos and that's something that they always 
associate me with i've I, you know, people will be like oh they will send me like pics, pictures of like bags of cheetos and be like oh this just reminded me of you <laughs> wow so, i i just came up with a, a branding strategy for you to help support Myanmar. for every bag of cheetos oh. that's bought you donate a dollar to Myanmar. just imagine that that would be great that would be great <laughs> I, imagine if cheetos did that that would be amazing Hey, we, we can start to... it now. We can start that now. Let's get it going. <laughs> I need to. I need to DM. I need to slide into the DMs again. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think there's okay uh, for context for most people because I, I know this. Uh, my friends also do the same thing as you, where they mm-hmm. actually bring like a whole suitcase filled of flaming mm-hmm. hot Cheetos back to Indonesia. Uh, Vietnam or Singapore like I started doing that because I I realized that the Flaming Hot Cheetos in Asia are so different from the Flaming Hot Cheetos in America right so Mm -hmm. there's no even comparison like every time I bring back a bag from America everyone's like yo this is this hits (laughs) different man like this is amazing like I'm like yeah I know dude I, I don't know what the difference is but I guess it is an American delicacy so Thank thank you for exposing that to Myanmar. I think they they need they need that love right now. <laughs> yeah, no, maybe maybe in the future when things you know are better again, I can I can be the the supplier, the Cheeto supplier for the country. <laughs> <laughs> that would be incredible. Well, just to wrap up, thank you, Crystal, for giving your time, uh, giving us an amazing history lesson because not a lot of people know that history about Myanmar and thank you for sharing on what we can do to help Myanmar. Is there anything you want to promote? Um, I would just want to promote, I guess, what's happening, what's happening in Myanmar. I guess look up the hashtag, you know, there's been lots of hashtags going on, uh, hashtag what's happening in Myanmar. Um, Hear the voice of Myanmar is also um, another kind of uh, hashtag. And there's also an account on Instagram that's been posting anonymous text conversations um, that's a bit more, you know, a different look at what's been going on. Um, and honestly, yeah, I, I just want people to to be aware of what's what's happening because, you know, it's 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 a small country, but I think there's a lot of potential in the country, and I feel like you know, the more people that know about it, the more it's gonna put pressure on the military, and eventually that would help us uh, win this fight. Folks, thank you for listening to another episode of Traces. Uh, Feel free to follow Crystal, um, and we will have her socials linked up to the interview. Thanks again. Have a good day, wherever you are. Thank you.